This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. We're going to start out by thanking our lovely Patreon contributors. They donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Chelsea, Ian, Rachel, Dominic, another Rachel, Melissa, Erica, Josie, Mary, Ashley, Michelle, Ban, Brianna, Heather, Dana, Elizaveta, Paul, Lexi, Lori, Lee, Kristen, Chris, Stevie, Elizabeth, Haley, Danella, Stephanie, Joel, Lola, Chelsea, Ruth, Latasha, Kathleen, and Needy. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. All right, Desi. So this is going to be a two-parter because this is kind of a juicy story. Mm. And part of it takes place in Los Angeles and part of it takes place in Arizona. Now, my main source for this episode is a book called The Trunk Murderess by Jana Bombersback. And I also read a lot of old newspaper articles from the time. Let's just get started. On October 18th, 1931, 26-year-old Winnie Ruth Judd boarded an 8 p.m. train in Phoenix, Arizona, headed for Los Angeles. The train would travel west overnight, expected to arrive in L.A. the next morning, where she was headed to see her husband, Dr. William Judd. He was 22 years older than his wife, who went by Ruth, by the way. Okay. So we're going to call her Ruth. Though Ruth had spent the last year living in Arizona, Dr. Judd was a traveling doctor, never staying in one location for long. And by traveling doctor, I mean that he kept losing his jobs. Oh. So he moved a lot, and he was constantly looking for new employment. So it wasn't like a cool thing at the time. I'm a traveling doctor. No. No. I just mean that he was traveling a lot, and his wife was like, I'm going to settle here in Phoenix. And you go get jobs. You go get a job. Hopefully you find one in Phoenix. Yeah. Okay. Get back to me. So he's living in L.A. at this time looking for work. So Ruth is traveling there via train to go see him. Ruth worked as a secretary at a medical clinic in Phoenix and lived alone in a small apartment. What little money that she had left over, she sent to her husband, who was addicted to narcotics and currently looking for employment in L.A. So So this is why he can't get a job, probably. Yes. (laughs) Yes. He's kind of a drunk and a druggie. Okay. So even though he's a doctor, (laughs) the the medical secretary is sending him what little money she has left just to get by. He had been in Los Angeles for several months now. Ruth 
had checked two large trunks, one weighing 235 pounds and one weighing 90 pounds. With her in the train was an old brown suitcase and a hat box. As the baggage boys were loading Ruth's trunks into the train, they saw some kind of dark liquid was leaking out of the larger one. When the train arrived in Los Angeles at 7.45 a.m. the next morning, baggage agent Arthur Anderson could see the trunk that was leaking, and he wondered if Ruth had been smuggling deer meat. Oh. He was like, that trunk is leaking, dark liquid, kind of looks like blood. I think it's deer meat. Imagine being that gullible. (laughs) Like, I don't even think that would be the top hundred things I thought first. (laughs) Well, apparently this is something people did. Okay. They smuggled deer meat, venison. Yeah. uh, And it had recently been like banned taking carcasses with you on the train. Wow. Because they had to ban that. <laughs> be, uh, because it was like a health hazard. Yeah. I mean, oh my god. So apparently the, enough people had done this okay. that it was like not something allowed. Okay. So he flagged the luggage when it arrived. Right. Before it could be picked up by Ruth. It was then held in the office until it could be inspected and approved for release. Meanwhile, Ruth posted up in a restroom with her carry-on luggage at the Los Angeles station. She told the attendant that she was waiting for her younger brother to pick her up. His name was Burton McKinnell, and he was a junior at USC. The restroom attendant asked Ruth what happened to her hand. It was wrapped in a bandage. Ruth said she burned it. Hours passed as Ruth waited. She told the attendant that her brother might not have gotten the message to meet her at the station and she would have to go down to the school to get him. The attendant asked her if she wanted to check her bags. Ruth said no, she didn't have enough money to rent a locker and take it and take the streetcar she needed to get to the school. So Ruth asked if the woman could just keep an eye on her carry-on bags oh. while she left. When Ruth arrived back at the station a couple hours later with her brother, they went to the office to collect her trunks. They handed Ruth's baggage claim slips to the clerk, which was Arthur Anderson, and they were led outside to where the trunks were. They were sitting on a flatbed. He asked Ruth what was inside the trunks and why they smelled so bad. (laughs) He then pointed to a pool of liquid that had collected on the ground beneath the trunks. Wouldn't they just throw this shit out right away? <laughs> like how they're inspecting, want to inspect something with liquid shit coming out of it. It's so gross. Look, this might be contraband. This and might then, be deer meat. At that point, the deer meat's probably all maggoty too. <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like if it's, yeah, this is not wrapped up very well. No. So they're like, can you explain this? Yeah. Pool of liquid beneath your trunks. Anderson instructed Ruth to open the trunk so they could inspect them. Ruth hesitated. Her brother interjected, and he was like, well, why don't we go inspect them at our house? Because she might be embarrassed if she opens them and there's something she doesn't want to wow. want you to see in there. Like it was dildos or something. Yeah, like that's it's rotting dildos, okay, guys? <laughs> <laughs> a, that's a good brother move. It's deer meat dildos. <laughs> Look, she takes the bones. They're, <laughs> <laughs> they're all natural. They're still in their flesh. That's what we're here for. <laughs> She's going to tan the hide later, make a nice little satchel for them. It's all good, but she needs to do this at Come our on, house. Guys, you get it. <laughs> 
Uh, so Anderson was like, no, we're going to do this right here. I'm not driving to your house. Seriously, why would you want to drive? <laughs> At that point, I just like, go. <laughs> Ruth said, well, my husband has the keys to the trunks, which was a lie. Yeah. Anderson was not buying it either. Ruth said she needed to call her husband so he could come to the station to bring the keys so they could open the trunks. <sighs> Anderson said they could use the phone in the office. Ruth and her brother walked to their car and just drove off. Of course. They're like, saw that coming. Just just leave. (laughs) I like how it's so sexist during this period that you can literally say, my husband has the keys. (laughs) He won't let me do anything. (laughs) And everyone's kind of like, okay, I guess. (laughs) Right. Like, call your your husband, dear. (laughs) Have him come pick you up. I like that they just left. They just bounced. Oh, my God. They never came back. Realizing they weren't coming back, Anderson called the police to come down and inspect the trunks. Detective Frank Ryan picked the lock of the large trunk and opened it. Inside was a piece of a rug, books, and some papers. He removed them. Then, underneath all of that, he discovered bloody women's clothing. Underneath the clothing lay a quilt, and underneath that quilt was something even more horrific. A woman's body that had been crammed inside the trunk. (gasps) It was a whole body, too. Damn. It was like it had been just jammed in there. That was the 250-pound trunk. This is the 250-pound <laughs> trunk, the bigger one. Next, Detective Ryan opened the smaller trunk. More books and paper were on the top. Underneath, he found more bloody women's clothing. But this time, the women's clothing were wrapped around something. He unwrapped it, and he discovered a foot and a leg that had been severed at the knee. Whoa. Wrapped in these clothes. Then he unwrapped a second bundle, which contained a woman's torso. There was one fully intact body in the larger trunk, but the smaller trunk had body parts. Ooh. That did not equal a whole body, mind you. Little did he know that Winnie Ruth Judd had left two other bags at the station, the suitcase and the hat box, which were still in the restroom. Oh. Remember when she left those there? She never came back to pick those up. Okay. Those pieces of luggage wouldn't be discovered until late that night. By that time, radio stations across the country broke the story that the remains of two different women were found inside of the luggage belonging to a woman who was now on the lam. When Ruth's two other pieces of luggage were found in the restroom, police discovered inside of the suitcase was the lower half of the woman's (gasps) torso. Oh my God. It had been severed from the waist to the knees. The intestines and bladder had been removed. Uh, Then they found inside of the hat box was a pistol, ammo, surgical equipment, surgical bandages, and a surgeon's bag. That's what you call getting caught red hand. (laughs) (laughs) These are are the pieces of evidence you don't want to be found. Like even the the weapons too. (laughs) Everything. It's all there. Both of these women had been killed by gunshot. The identities of the two women were determined to be 32-year-old Agnes Ann Leroy and 24-year-old Hedvig Sammy Samuelson. Hedvig went by Sammy, so we're going to call her Sammy. Okay. Agnes was an x-ray technician at the Phoenix Clinic where Ruth worked, and Sammy lived with her. Agnes, who had been left intact and crammed into the larger trunk, had been shot and killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Sammy had been shot three times. 
once near her ear, one in the chest, and one in the arm, suggesting that there was some kind of a struggle. Ruth's husband, Dr. Judd, was actually apprehended. Like, they arrested him, but he was cleared pretty quickly. He told the police, quote, I cannot believe that Ruth did this terrible thing alone. I want her to surrender, tell her story, and we will help her. I believe she had an accomplice if she did this at all. Now, the press was all over this story. It was national news, and everyone wanted to know every sordid detail about the crime and personal life of Winnie Ruth Judd, who had now become very well known to the public. On Wednesday the 21st, the LA Times opened their article with, Jealousy, stimulated by gay parties and possibly narcotics, today appeared as motive for the gruesome murders of Mrs. Agnes Anne Leroy, pretty divorcee, and Miss Hedvig Samuelson. Is gay like the old school version of gay? Yes. Okay. But there's also the gay gay. Yeah. Oh, okay. That we'll talk about okay, too. Good. That comes up in this story. Uh, so yeah, the, every every party described, and there's a lot of partying in this Story, every party is described as a gay party. Look, just because their name is Winnie or Ruth and Agnes doesn't mean they don't party. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, these these chicks got down. Yeah. Now, the paper said that they had learned from neighbors of wild drug-fueled parties hosted by Ruth at her home and sometimes at the home of Agnes and Sammy. Neighbors reported that Ruth had hosted three different parties the week of the murders, the last one occurring on Thursday night, which was 24 hours before the murders were been determined to have taken place. The time of death was ruled to have occurred at 10.30 p.m. on Friday night. Agnes and Sammy hosted parties that week as well. The last one they hosted would be Friday night. An attendee, a nurse named Evelyn Nace, said everything seemed okay when she left their house at 9.30 p.m. An hour later, a neighbor came forward and said that she had heard shots coming from the women's home. So just an hour after this nurse friend left their house, yeah, the shots rang out. Another neighbor named Gene, he lived next door. He also heard shots coming from Agnes and Sammy's house, but he just went back to bed. Okay. Nobody <laughs> called the police at this point. The following day, on Saturday, Ruth called into work and said that she would be late. Also calling in that day was someone claiming to be Agnes, saying she couldn't come into work because she had to go to Tucson. But, of course, Agnes was already dead by this point, and the secretary that this person spoke to said that she was pretty sure it was Ruth calling, (laughs) pretending to be Agnes. She's like... You work here, Ruth. I know that's, that's you. That's so weird. Like, she called to call in Hello, late. this is uh, Agnes. <laughs> <laughs> yes? <laughs> I'm going to Tushan. It's like in Baby Jane, where Betty Davis pretends to be Joan Crawford to oh order liquor. Dude. But they just use Joan Crawford's voice, and Betty Davis is lip syncing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so creepy, that part. It's the creepiest thing ever. The doc- Hi. The- the this doc- is Blanche. <laughs> the doctor at the clinic was really pissed that Agnes would just blow off work that yeah. day. They had a lot of patients, and she was the technician for the x-ray right. machine. And he was like, what the fuck, Agnes? And the secretary was like, I don't even think that was Agnes. I think it was Ruth. Right, but they probably still assumed that there was some partying shit that happened. Of course. Like, yeah. Yeah, they definitely thought that. When Ruth 
came into work later that day, she was confronted by the secretary and she was like, did you just call here earlier this morning <laughs> impersonating Agnes? And Ruth swore she did not. You got to love these like blatant liars in these situations where they just like are like, she's one of the worst criminals so far that I've ever heard of <laughs> as far as trying to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> like she didn't know. I mean, she clearly did no planning. <laughs> this is not a good situation. Everyone else at the office in the morning that day agreed that Ruth looked like shit when she arrived. <laughs> you gotta love that too. <laughs> Everyone's, you know what I mean? Like you know when the reporters come like a month later, like, yeah, and actually she looked like shit that day. <laughs> <laughs> they all said that. I read the articles, they're like, she looked awful. Can you imagine <laughs> seeing that in jail? <laughs> like everyone bagging on you. <laughs> Dude, okay, so Obviously, in all these old newspaper articles, they always describe women in the most hilarious ways. Like, they describe um, one of the murder victims as a pretty divorcee. Yeah. Like, they have to add that part in. They also described uh, Ruth as, like, a sickly a lot. Oh, she yeah. had tuberculosis at one point. Oh, my God. And so did the other victims. Sickly and horse-faced. Yeah. <laughs> They're like so cruel. Like they're sometimes. so mean, even to the victims. Yeah, they're so mean about it. They're like, she was a hefty woman. <laughs> they said that about the woman who was in the two hundred fifty pound uh, suitcase. They ugh. anyway. Okay. Now, the papers, especially ones owned by Hearst, like the Los Angeles Examiner, latched onto every salacious detail they could, whether they were factual or not, about the personal life of Winnie Ruth Judd and the cast of characters surrounding the crime. There were papers in New York that claimed that Ruth had fed pieces of the victims to her cat. (gasps) Another claimed that she killed the women because they would not kill her cat. What? I have a lot of... I just went back and forth the stream. (laughs) There were... For some reason, Ruth's cat was like a... Was a witness. Was the cat okay, though? Yes. Okay, good. I I found... Of course I found an update on the cat. Are you kidding me? Now, the cat in question was a small Persian cat. (laughs) So very cute. The cat was actually found safe and unharmed at the home of Agnes and Sammy. It was given a bowl of milk and a plate of beef steak. Nice. Well, that's what they fed cats in the 30s. Yeah. A bowl of milk and beef. Now we know. Don't give cats milk. (laughs) But back then, it was the classic. Yeah. There were speculations from the deputy county attorney in Phoenix that the murder was a result of drug use and jealousy over a man. And then, of course, there was the speculation that the three women were all involved in a lesbian love triangle. Nice. The Los Angeles Evening Express obtained Sammy's diary, in which she described being sick for nearly a year before she was killed. She described herself as a hedonist. The Evening Express sub-headline, is that what it's called when there's like a headline below the headline? Okay. It said of Sammy, quote, pleasure-seeking made life aim as girls saw specter of death in the background. So this article in the Evening Express was like, now we're not saying she wanted to die. Yeah, Yeah, but her choices in life led her there. Yeah, it was was like borderline victim blamey and very like, she said she was a hedonist. Well, she got what she wanted. (laughs) Sammy wrote about Agnes a lot, about how much she loved her, adding to the speculation that these girls were romantically involved. Okay. I buy it. I mean, look, these girls were inseparable. They lived together. They 
were obsessed with each other. They could have been fucking. And you're not allowed to to come out as that. Right. But people were okay with two women living together. Like, oh, the two old maids. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. People were just like, oh, they, one of them's a divorcee. Right. And the other one's never married. And they're best friends. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. There was a letter that was found at Agnes and Sammy's home. It was dated September 18th, 1931. It was sent to Sammy from a wealthy society woman in Seattle that I guess Sammy was friends with. This is not very consequential to the case. It's just a fun fact. She had been invited to come with this society woman to John Barrymore's house in Beverly Hills for dinner. Ooh, I don't think she went, but she was invited. Nice. The papers printed Ruth's love letters that she had written to her husband. They printed a lot of these letters that they found. This is one dated June 1st, 1931. Obviously, Dr. Judd is not living with his wife at the time. Uh, And she, she writes, do you miss seeing me? I do you. I feel like crying tonight. It makes me nervous when you are not here. I have the window open next to the girls, so I won't feel so bad. I'm not afraid, but I miss you, so don't stay any longer than Thursday, will you not? I love you even if you are a very naughty little boy. You are mine, and I worry when you aren't right close to me. I wish you would write a nice letter with lots of love, Ruth. Needy. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you would write me a nice letter. Also, I like that she asks questions, but he's going to be home by the time he responds. (laughs) 
Yeah, like he would pop into Phoenix and stuff. Yeah. To visit Ruth. Right. Uh, but he didn't live there. He was still looking for work. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> why? I was like, or well, I'll tell you uh, okay. more about him. Let's go back in time. Ruth was born Winifred Ruth McKinnell on January 29th, uh, 1905, in Oxford, Indiana. Her father was a minister and her mother was a school teacher. Ruth described her father as a kind and godly man who preached love. She described her mother as a hardworking, good Christian woman. She said, quote, We lived a simple life in a comfortable home, but I did have a repressed childhood and later a repressed marriage. In 1923, Ruth met her husband, Dr. William Judd, when she was working as an assistant at a psychiatric facility in Indiana. He was not a patient. He was a doctor. Okay. He was 41, and she was 18. They were married the following year in 1924 by her father at his church. After they married, they moved to Vanegas, Mexico. Vanegas? Probably. Probably Venegas, Mexico, where Dr. Judd was hired as a doctor for a crew of silver miners. While in Mexico, Ruth became pregnant, but she lost the baby when she came down with tuberculosis. Now, she had been battling tuberculosis for a long time. She had it when she was a kid. Then she came down with it again oh. while they're in Mexico. So that's a good, that's like a p- common place, Phoenix, where a lot of people with tuberculosis moved. And Los Angeles. Yeah. They needed a dry climate, I yeah. guess. Uh, but apparently where they were in Mexico, the climate wasn't right. Ruth became pregnant again a second time, but lost that baby. She wanted to be a mother so badly. And Dr. Judd would later reveal that she would often pretend as if they did have a baby, even picking out names for their imaginary son. Hmm. She liked the names Caesar, Moses, and Napoleon. Sounds bad idea to me to name your kids. <laughs> she, uh, she, like, re- legitimately was kind of, I guess, going through some kind of crisis. Yeah. Where she was pretending, like, talking as if they had a baby. Yeah, that's beyond just picking names. Right. Ruth and Dr. Judd spent three years living in Mexico together, and by 1927, Ruth's tuberculosis flared up again, so she checked into a hospital in Lavina, California, to treat her condition. She spent the next few years moving back and forth between the States and Mexico, when, and when her combi- condition would come back, she would go back to the States. Her husband traveled between various parts of Mexico, and Ruth would join him, wherever he wound up, if she was feeling better. But the climate in Mexico proved to just be too incompatible for her continuing sickness. And so by 1930, she landed in Phoenix, Arizona, where she would spend the next year. By this time, Ruth's husband was addicted to opiates. He continued to bounce from job to job, promising Ruth that they would have some stability soon. He even went to rehab in an attempt to treat his addiction. While Ruth was working in Phoenix as a live-in caretaker for the Lee Ford family, she met prominent local businessman Jack Halloran. Him and his family lived next door. Jack was co-owner of the Halloran Bennett Lumber Company and considered one of Arizona's movers and shakers. On Christmas Eve 1930, Ruth was alone in her apartment, sad that her husband was away at rehab. And then... (laughs) I don't know why 
That sounds so funny. And then Jack showed up, knocking at her door. Okay. He was there to comfort her. Meanwhile, it's Christmas Eve, and he has a whole family. What? And he stumbles over. Wait, he's a very successful businessman? Yes. Why is he into her? Well, (laughs) because she's young and hot, I guess. Uh, Okay, is she hot? She's cute. Okay. Uh, anyway, Jack sucks. He he goes over there to comfort Ruth. They fucked, of course, <gasps> that night. She did? Yeah, they oh, fucked. Okay. And this began a whirlwind secret affair between the two of them. Okay. Ruth wanted Jack to get her pregnant. Oh. And at one point, she did believe she had become pregnant by him. But a test done at the clinic where she worked came back negative. Ruth would later say that she had bled for 12 days, believing she had miscarried. Ruth was not the only girl that Jack was seeing. He was a well-known slut about town. Wow. Ruth was obviously way more into Jack than he was into her. She believed also that it was possible to love two men at the same time, her husband and her secret boyfriend, Jack. She's Polly. She's... A few months later, Ruth met Agnes Leroy and her best friend and roommate, Hedvig Sammy Samuelson, when she began working as a secretary at the Grunau Medical Clinic. Agnes and Sammy had met in Alaska before moving to Phoenix together in February of 1931, when Sammy's tuberculosis had flared up. So she had to move from Alaska to Arizona. The three women became close friends, bonding over the fact that they were essentially women on their own without a lot of money, just trying to get by. Okay. They were the three amigos. Yeah. In May of 1931, Ruth moved into the duplex where Agnes and Sammy lived. When Agnes left for Oregon over the summer to stay with her family when she was sick, Ruth took care of Sammy, who was also too sick to work. When Agnes returned from Oregon, the three girls all lived together for a time in the one-bedroom apartment. But by October 1931, Ruth moved into her own place a few blocks away. The three girls loved hosting parties together, and Jack Halloran was often there, supplying booze for the party. Jack would often bring over his guy friends, other successful businessmen, mm. like older businessmen, <laughs> yeah. and like they were definitely fucking these girls. Yeah. And... Like, there were other young girls there as well. So Jack would basically be like, hey, I know this spot where all the chicks hang out. Yeah. You don't have to hang out with your wife tonight. It's like hanging out with the Manson family <laughs> where they got them in with the girls. Yeah. Like, they would just go over there. He would just bring his, like, business guy friends over and they would just drink all night. And fuck these girls. And fuck these chicks. Jack... And the guys would often bring gifts for the girls and sometimes even give them money, which, of course, led the newspapers to speculate, were these women sex workers? Was this an arrangement? It's not very clear. A week before the murder, Jack Halloran was busy preparing for a weekend hunting trip for him and his pals. Ruth told Jack she had a friend who was coming to town who knew some good hunting spots. So she arranged for Jack to have dinner with her and this friend on Wednesday. But Wednesday rolled around and Jack blew off the dinner. He had gotten shit-faced and showed up to Ruth's apartment later that night and he was like, hey. Classic guy. And she... And she was pissed. She's like, we were supposed to have dinner tonight, and now you're showing up at my front door, shit-faced. Yes, of course you can come in and fuck (laughs) me. 
She was pissed, but he was like, it's cool, baby. We'll just do dinner tomorrow. Yeah. When Jack left Ruth's apartment that night, he passed one of the building's other residents, a a school teacher named Maude. On the way out, Jack made some kind of unsolicited (gasps) horny comment to her. This is... (laughs) What? <laughs> I need to know. Look, I could not find what he said to this woman. I'm sure it was so undignified that she couldn't even repeat it. Yeah. But we can imagine it was probably gross. Or probably very tame. Yes. But like gross back then. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like he... I smell something. Or <laughs> <laughs> he said something like, boy, I love to get a whiff of that cherry pie. Yeah. I mean, that is disgusting. That's pretty disgusting. He probably we could s- never do something chaste enough. <laughs> no, we couldn't. Um, so this chick, Maude, is like fresh. Yeah. And she was so horrified by, what, by whatever he said that she watched him go to his car and she took down his license plate number. Ooh. Because she's like, if this guy ever comes back, I yeah. want to know. Smart girl. This horny girl. Um <laughs> Poor Ruth. She just fucked this guy and he's in the hallway. Seriously? That's on so other, undignified. So, <laughs> so demoralizing. He's hitting also, on... Also, you just came. Like, you yes. can't, you're still horny. Like, you gross pig. Get a grip. <laughs> Imagine fucking someone and then seeing a hot guy and be like, ooh. Like, how is that even on your mind still? It's so gross. <laughs> the next night... Jack and Ruth planned to have dinner with Ruth's friend, Lucille. This was the nurse with the hot hunting tip spots. Oh. <laughs> hot, hunting, hot hunting Hot hunting spot tip. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. She had she tips. Just, she knows all the great hunting spots. <laughs> <laughs> what a thing to know about someone. Oh, my friend who knows all the greatest hunting spots is coming tomorrow. <laughs> well, I was going to explain why she knew Okay. <laughs> She well, I mean, it's kind of an explanation. She was a country girl. She was oh, oh. <laughs> she was moving, looking to move to Phoenix from the country, like up in the mountains or something. Oh, so she knew all the mountain areas. She knew all the mountain hunting spots. She was looking for a job in Phoenix, and Ruth was excited to see her. She was planning on making huevos rancheros for dinner. Ooh. I got real hungry for huevos rancheros <laughs> when I read. I like that she wanted to make that for dinner. I do too. Yeah. You you can eat that any time of day. Of course. It's a great dish. Jack drove Ruth and Lucille, and on the way to Ruth's apartment, he insisted on stopping by Agnes and Sammy's duplex, which annoyed Ruth because she had told the girls earlier that she couldn't hang out with them that night because she had to work. She didn't want to get caught in a lie if they knew she was outside waiting in Jack's car with her other friend, Lucille. And she couldn't tell them she was spending the night with Jack because no one knew about her secret boyfriend. Why did he want to stop there? Well, I'll okay. tell you. Jack insisted on picking up two of his guy friends who were at the duplex. He's like, let's make it What? A- is this Melrose place? <laughs> <laughs> it honestly kind of is. Like, I actually know friends were the one place you don't want to be tonight are and like, like what are the chances and like ruth had planned this dinner for three people but he's like let's pick up my friends Ugh, jack is annoying yeah he sucks so <laughs> um okay where are we as ruth and lucille waited in the car outside of the duplex ruth told lucille that she used to live there but moved out what <laughs> 
Oh, Ruth. Yeah. Okay. Ru- I thought Lucille. I was like, wait, what? She lived there no. too? Is this the only no. duplex in Phoenix? <laughs> no, Ruth Ruth was like, you know, I used to live there. Okay. And then she was like, but I moved out because I had a disagreement with the girls. Just then, Agnes and Sammy came out of the <gasps> house. Jack had told them that Ruth was there. What? Even though Ruth explicitly was like, don't tell them I'm here. Like, I'm supposed to be uh, working. Because I was like, why are they coming out? They came out and they're like, Ruth. Hey. So they're all happy. Yeah, they're happy to see her. They gave her a hug. Ruth tried to save face by running out to meet the girls. Like, hey. They told Ruth that she should just stay for dinner. They should all stay for dinner because Dr. Brinkerhoff, who was at the house, had brought over pork chops. Who just brings over pork chops? This Dr. Brinkerhoff. He's he was fun. Gonna, he was he's fun. He's gonna Hey gr- guys, I got some pork chops. He's gonna grill up some pork chops. They're gonna get drunk. Okay. And maybe fuck. Party time. It's party time at Agnes and Sammy's house. So Ruth was irritated. She's like, I I can't. I already have dinner stuff at my house. I got the huevos. <laughs> She's. I look. I get it. I get this. I when get, you have a plan, you don't want to deviate. She had yeah. a dinner plan. She had dinner stuff at her house. She doesn't want pork chops. Yeah. She's not in the mood for pork chops. She yeah. wants huevos rancheros. And I'm picturing. She's been excited for it all week. I'm excited about them. I'm probably going to make them this week yeah. now because it sounds delicious. So she was just annoyed at everything at this point. So Jack and his two guy friends piled into the car with Ruth and Lucille. He took them along. Ruth was annoyed at Jack for telling the girls that she was with him and just for upending her dinner plans. She was just annoyed at everything. The fact that she had to keep her relationship with Jack secret from everyone, including her best friends, and the fact that Jack still flirted with other girls, including her best friends. Yeah. Like I said, Jack was known to be a playboy... Yeah. Very flirty. He clearly was fucking other women. Yeah. Like, not just... It's not that he just had a side piece, because remember, he's married. Yeah. But he's also has side pieces to his side piece. Yeah. And Ruth is just irritated by it all at this point. But he had told Ruth that she was the only one for him, and she believed him. When they got to the apartment, Lucille thought it was weird that Ruth's husband wasn't there. She knew Jack was married too, and she was like, this is, I kind of feel uncomfortable because I'm watching Ruth and Jack flirt all night and and even kiss each other in front of me. Yeah, Like, I thought both of you guys were married. Yeah. What's going on? I may be a country girl, but something don't sit right. (laughs) (laughs) That's a direct quote. Winnie Ruth Judd arrived at Agnes and Sammy's duplex on the evening of Friday, October 16th. Jack had blown her off again, so she decided to pop by and see what the girls were up to. They had just had dinner and played bridge with Evelyn Nace, who was a nurse at the clinic. They had leftover pork chops from the (laughs) night before. They also had creamed salmon, salad, scalloped potatoes, and canned corn. Wait, creamed what? Creamed salmon. Creamed salmon. Is Is that that like like a moose? That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking a moose. Yeah. Uh, The scalloped potatoes sound good. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't want scalloped potatoes? I can't think of a potato I don't like. I like every preparation of potato. Oh man, scalloped potatoes. They're so good. 
Oh, my God. <sighs> okay. Okay, so that's what they were having for dinner. Evelyn had just left when Ruth arrived. Ruth had been invited to dinner, but she told the girls she had work to do. So when she showed up after all, she explained that she finished her work early. None of them knew that she actually had plans to fuck her secret married boyfriend. But since he didn't show, she went over there. Yeah. Ruth and Agnes were both scheduled for work early the next morning. So Agnes suggested that Ruth just spend the night. They all got into their pajamas, which were pink, by the way, and prepared for bed in the small bedroom. By Saturday, Ruth was heading in late to work at the clinic. A patient named Grace Mitchell would later state that Ruth looked awful. (laughs) See, I told you, everyone said Ruth looked like shit that day. And she stated that Ruth had a bandage on her hand. The next day, on Sunday, Ruth was headed on that train to Los Angeles with the bodies of her friends stuffed inside her luggage. During the manhunt for Ruth, tips poured in, in and out of like different apparent sightings of her. People had seen her various places or thought they had seen her. Some people said they saw her in Venice. Others claimed they saw her hitchhiking in both Laguna Beach and Fresno. A transient woman was arrested at a hotel in San Diego on suspicion of being the fugitive murderess. Ruth's brother's place in Beverly Glen was placed under surveillance at this time. They also, another food note here, there's a lot of great food information. Give it to me. When they searched his apartment, they found the four sandwiches and some cream pie. Ooh. And they were like... Love a good cream pie. And they were like, was Ruth going to eat this? But she didn't have time. <laughs> Not one cop made a funny joke. No. <laughs> oh, you got a cream pie? You like cream pies? <laughs> you like cream pies at your brother's house, Ruth? <laughs> Why don't you print that in the paper? In a letter written by Ruth from 1952, she detailed her excursions throughout L.A. She said that on Monday the 19th, she walked into the Lavina Sanatorium in Altadena and camped out there in an empty room for the next four days. Ooh. She said that no one even checked on this room and she just went completely undiscovered. So this is after there's a manhunt for her. She's like, I'm in Altadena. <laughs> she went to Altadena. She checked- so wait, is this is a sanatorium? Yes. Oh, but this is where, where she, is. this is where she went uh, for her tuberculosis. Oh, okay. Like a, yeah. a while ago. She had previously stayed So she there. just went back there. She just went to Altadena. She's like, well, I know this place. Yeah, interesting. And she just walked in, didn't check in. No one checked on her. She just found an empty room and holed up there for four days. Wow. She said no one checked on the room. She went undiscovered. She uh, then just waltzed out with no one being the wiser. Interesting. She said she then went to Pasadena next, where she made a phone call to a doctor at Bishop's Sanitarium. She could, he could tell that something wasn't right, and he asked her to come check in. She didn't, but she mailed a letter to someone later that day. Then Ruth went downtown and walked into Broadway Department Store, where she actually used to work at one point. Okay. This is a quote from the letter Ruth wrote. I stood around staring at people I knew or who knew me. I was in such a stupor that I got locked in the store at night. I didn't think to change clothes, 
but to steal anything was the furthest thing from my mind. I slept in the furniture department of that store under a rug. When I awakened the next morning, people were rushing all around me and going about their business. So she just walks into this department store, falls asleep under a rug. (laughs) No one's like, hey. She just gets lucky, right? I mean, she has no plan. She has no plan at all. Ruth says in the morning when she woke up from underneath this rug and there's like shoppers there, still no one's discovered her. She's, that's the dream to yeah. sleep in a shopping store like a store overnight yeah because <laughs> you're hiding when you're a kid <laughs> yeah you hope that all the lights go out yeah and you're just in the circle rack that's yeah. where you hide Dude. i know how to do it i loved <laughs> i loved hiding in that rack you stay in there everything closes down no one knows you're in the circle except my mom always knew she paged me well the parents always ruin everything <laughs> God damn it. That fucking page. I would have gotten away with that plan. I'm sure of it. If I didn't have a parent. (laughs) Borderline cared. I tried to hide in the big stacks of tires at at Costco. Oh, that was like, everything was like, where can I hide? Yeah. This is why children die in refrigerators. Right. Like, because it's just like, you're always looking for hiding spots. Totally. Yeah. So... Ruth says she could hear a woman talking about the search for her as she was reading a newspaper. I guess she was just reading a newspaper in the middle of this department store and that she heard the woman read aloud a number to call. Oh. It was her husband in the paper who was pleading for her to please contact him. Oh, my God. So Ruth was like, I better call that number. (laughs) So she, she... Called her husband, Dr. Judd, and he picked up. He told her to meet him at the Biltmore Theater. When she arrived at the theater, her husband had a car waiting for her. They drove to a funeral home where a lawyer was there waiting. Dr. Judd explained to Ruth that the sheriff had agreed to let her check into a hospital for a month first before being turned over to the police. In the letter, Ruth said... The promises made by officials were not kept. It was October 23rd, 1931, when they arrived at the funeral home and police were there waiting to arrest Ruth. Oh, my God. They lied. Her husband lied to her. I know. (laughs) The poor husband was, like, pleading with the... The brother was pleading with with her to come home, as well as uh, her dad. Her dad was in complete denial saying she's a church girl. Right. A church, good Christian girl would never do anything Not like my this. Winnie Ruth. Not my Winnie Ruth Judd. Uh, I feel like it's stressful, though, to be on the lam with nowhere to go. You, you know what I mean? Like, not a, like, you don't even have, like, a cabin or somewhere. Right. Like, I wouldn't want to keep moving around every day. That's not the life for me. <laughs> in a high-stress situation like Yeah, this? to have to keep moving and, like, not knowing where and sleeping in a store, it would be stressful to me. Absolutely. So, I don't know. She probably wouldn't have lasted much longer. Yeah. With, I mean, she probably would have turned herself in eventually. Apparently, I mean, she, apparently she, like, according to her, she was in a complete daze. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. She just walked into this department store and just slept there. Yes. No. Sounds, uh, sounds like it. So next week, we're going to go into more about Jack Halloran, her secret married boyfriend. Mm, The fuck boy of Phoenix. (laughs) We're going to talk about the fuck boy of Phoenix. We're going to talk about some weird theories about this. Because uh, the thing, 
The thing about this book that I read, she's adamant that Winnie Ruth Judd is like innocent. Okay. Or that this wasn't her fault. Yeah. She's adamant. She there's did Winnie have an accomplice? We're gonna find out what happened on that night. Okay. What Winnie Ruth Judd claims, what others claim happened. Okay. Couldn't cram it into one episode tonight, Des. So that's good. I'm excited to hear what happened. Yeah. Or we'll talk what, about all the, the trial. All the different theories. Yeah, there was like a lot of theories. There's a lot of information on this on this case, and surprisingly, no one ever made a movie about it, not even a TV movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, this sounds like a TV movie with like Mary Steenburgen. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know why that popped into my head. You know what I'm talking about. Or <laughs> no, that girl from Seventh Heaven would play Winnie Ruth Judd, Beverly Mitchell. Oh, you know that one? Yeah, she was yeah, like yeah. the middle daughter. Yeah. Yeah. It's like her one big role outside of Seventh After Heaven. After Seventh yeah. Heaven, she plays Winnie Ruth Judd. Okay. And then Jack Halloran is played by Tom Skerritt. <laughs> you know it. You know he's played by Tom Skerritt. He, he's play, plays every old guy. Old creepy guy. Yeah. Like, wasn't he in Poison like kind Ivy? kind of fatherly. Yeah. But creepy yeah, way. Fatherly, but like they're trying to make him sexy, but he's not. But he's also has played some good dads. I will give him credit. But he's, yeah. I mean, I always see every father as creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so don't listen to me. <laughs> um, cool. I'm excited to see some pics too. I want to see yeah. what this bitch looks like. Yeah. I got some pics of Winnie. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Follow our Instagram. Oh, Yeah. If you want to see pictures from the case, that would be great. That's it. That's it. Bye.